often like a drunk man getting on his horse. He puts his foot in the stirrup. He pulls with all his might, and he gets himself into the saddle only to fall off on the other side. I'd like to add a qualification to Luther's statement. I agree with him. The church is all too often like that with many issues, but uh, when the church struggles with overcorrection, uh, when we pull too hard and, and wind up on the wrong side of the horse, that's not a problem of our Christian faith. It's a problem of our human sin. This is where we began our study two weeks ago before uh, a break for my family vacation. We, we recognized that the world's schizophrenia creeps into the church regarding sex and sexuality. And so there are some folks outside the church who treat sex so casually as to make it a, a matter of bodily function and nothing more. It's, it's just something like eating or drinking. It's just something natural. On the other hand, there are those who make sexual choice or sexual freedom the defining characteristic of our human identity. We talked about that. And in response to those those errors, if we are not being guided by the wisdom of God's word, we as believers, uh, well, we can overcorrect a bit too far in the wrong direction. As we open our Bibles today in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that seems to be the sort of thing that Paul is dealing with. For the previous two chapters, if we had been reading through 1 Corinthians and studying this together, you'd see that in the previous two chapters, Paul has been trying to impress upon this church that sexual morality, that sexual purity is something very important. He told them that because the Lord is for our bodies, what we do with our bodies actually matters. He said Christians are called to flee from sexual immorality. He said to the Ephesians, fornication and uncleanness must not even be named among you. Immorality is a serious thing. Okay, then, if... If immorality is so serious, if it's so dangerous, maybe the best way to avoid immorality is simply to avoid sex altogether, at least to avoid it as much as humanly possible. You, you know this logic. This is the, uh, the resolution that you make on January 1st, that you will eat no more than 600 calories for the next three months every day. And why do you do that? Well, you do that to make up for the 4,000 calories a day you ate every day between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Right? There's a certain logic to that approach. It says that if gluttony is bad, well, then food must be the problem. And throughout the history of the church, there have been people who have applied that logic to sex and to immorality. One of the most extreme examples we might cite in, in more recent years were the Shakers. A fanatic re religious sect uh, who required all followers to renounce sex and marriage and to live in a communal society while they waited for the return of Christ. Most believers don't take it that far, but many live their lives with a sort of underlying a suspicion that sex itself might be the problem behind our immorality. This is a long-standing view within the church. All the way back in the 4th century, the church father Jerome put it this way. He said, all those who have not remained virgins, following the pattern of the pure chastity of the angels and of our Lord Jesus Christ himself, they are polluted. There's the assumption. The assumption is that sex itself 
wherever it shows up, is polluting. And so maybe it's better then to avoid it altogether. Maybe better even to avoid it in marriage. That seems to be the issue that Paul is wrestling with here. Notice the setup in verse 1. He says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. Obviously, Paul is turning to a new topic. The Corinthians had previously written to him, and when they did, they had asked for clarification on a few items. For much of the rest of this letter, Paul will, one by one, deal with each of their hang-ups in turn. And this is the first one. The question of whether it's good, he says, for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. In the Greek, the word is touch. It's good for a man not to touch a woman, but the ESV is a, a good translation. We understand by the context, this is not talking about a handshake. This is a question of sexuality. The question for us, though, if we want to understand this passage, is whether this second half of verse 1 this statement about what is good or not good, whether the second half of verse 1 contains the question from the Corinthians or whether it contains the answer from the apostle. In other words, do the Corinthians think that sex should be avoided, or is Paul teaching them that that's what they ought to avoid? You notice in our ESVs, if that's the translation you have before you, it has this line in quotation marks, but we mentioned last time in chapter 6 uh, that the Greek uh, had no such thing. That means we have to make an interpretive decision. Based on the context, based on the rest of what Paul says in this chapter, is it more likely that this statement came from Corinth or that it came from Paul? Obviously, there are people like Jerome, maybe people like the Shakers, uh, who would take all of verse 1 as Paul's teaching. If you do that, what you hear is Paul saying something like, you know, the celibate life represents a higher spiritual ideal for the Christian. The celibate life actually is a life free from physical entanglements. It's a life without the pollution of the flesh. And, and we condescend a bit. We say, of course, sex is necessary for the race. Uh, for continued generations, but it might just be a kind of second best. Uh, sex and marriage, well, that's for those believers who aren't quite spiritual enough uh, to control themselves and their desires. This is one of the views that is still very much present in the Roman Catholic Church, by the way. You know, that church where all of those really spiritual people, all of the priests and all of the nuns and all of the monks are required to be so spiritual that they forego marriage and sexuality. So there are many who hear Paul saying it is good, that it's morally good, that it's spiritually superior even to avoid sexual contact completely. That's one view. Well, there are several problems with that view. I want to point out a general problem and also a specific one. The general problem is that Paul has far too high a view of marriage to be saying that himself, I think. Don't forget that Paul was a converted Jew. He was a Pharisee who knew his Old Testament. He knew that as Genesis says, it is not good for man to be alone. He knew that God himself created the one flesh relationship of marriage before there was any such thing as pollution. He knew that in God's paradise, the first couple were both naked and unashamed. So in Paul's mind, marriage and all the intimacy that goes along with it, that's a good thing. It's a gift from God. 
More than that, we can point out that marriage is a spiritual thing. Remember the passage that we looked at together from Ephesians chapter 5. This, uh, this one flesh union between a husband and a wife, Paul said that actually becomes a parable to understand the covenantal bond between Jesus and his bride, the church. This mystery is profound, he said, but it refers to Christ and the church. So just generally speaking, we say that Paul has too high a view of marriage to make it some sad second best for the Christian. More specifically, though, in this passage, in verses 1 through 7, we need to understand that Paul is not dealing with the question of whether Christians should get married. He is instead dealing with the question of what married Christians ought to be doing. Take a look in verse 8. In verse 8, there's another change of subject. He says, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single. We'll come back to that in a little bit. But for now, recognize that Paul is shifting again, and that shift to talk of those who are not married in verse 8 means that in verses 1 through 7, he's talking about those who are. That's the context. The question in verse 2 is not, should you get married then? And so all the commands in the early half of this passage fit within the context of a husband and wife relationship, one that is already established. Verse 3, he says the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. Likewise, a wife to her husband. Verse 4, he says the wife does not have authority over her own body. Amazingly, he says, neither does the husband. As an aside here, you notice how wonderfully mutual this all is in Paul's estimation. One commentator pointed out, I think rightly so, he said that in most cultures, sadly, often even in the church, sex uh, throughout history has been viewed as the husband's privilege and the wife's obligation. Not so, says Paul. That's not how it's meant to be. In a Christian marriage, each partner has needs, each partner has rights, each partner has responsibilities. And the duty for both the husband and the wife is to serve the person God has given you rather than to seek to be served yourself. So he goes on, verse 5. Do not deprive one another, he says. The word there is defraud. Do not cheat one another. Do not hold back what is due to the other person when they are owed, even if you think that it might be more spiritual to abstain instead. It brings us back to the issue of what to do with verse 2. Paul's immediate response. But because of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife. And here the verb actually is repeated. And each wife should have her own husband. Let me put it delicately. There is in the Jewish mind a difference between what we might sometimes call taking a wife and having a wife. It's the difference between getting married and having relations. In Mark chapter 6, verse 18, we learn that John the Baptist had gotten himself into hot water. Why? Because he had been telling Herod, it is unlawful for you to have your brother's wife. He had not taken her, but he had her. In the Greek version of Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 30, the Lord is declaring all the judgments that are going to come upon his people for covenant disobedience, and he tells them this. He says, you will take a wife, but another will have her. So what's it mean? Well, it means actually that verses 2 through 5 are a correction to verse 1. 
Paul's quoting them there. It seems that the Corinthians are the ones who are saying, you know, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. And Paul is responding, not if you're married, it's not. That's actually not a good thing. Actually, you ought to engage in those sorts of things. If you are married, sex should be regular. It should be intentional. It should be mutually beneficial, he tells us. If you are married, sex should be one of the good ways that God calls you to bless your spouse. Here's how we could summarize this first point of our study together today. Paul is telling us that within marriage, sex is a gift God expects us to receive. Sexual intimacy is not just an optional add-on to an otherwise spiritual relationship with this person you share your life with. It is not a second best option for those who can't control themselves. It is part of the very design that God has given for how men and women should live in covenantal love. It means that within marriage, sex is not polluting. It is not sinful. It is not dangerous. It is not wrong. When it is used well, with compassion and with tenderness, it is in fact something that is very, very good. Now, I've been in ministry just long enough that I'm starting to identify a few patterns that come up in my conversations over and over again. One of the patterns that I've noticed over these last dozen or so years is that our young couples struggle in this area of their marriages. In a sense, that's to be expected. That's it's part of the normal transition into married life. And it comes from a whole host of factors. A lot of backgrounds here. It comes from the reality that, that intimacy in marriage involves vulnerability, that we don't experience anywhere else, and that's new and it's, it's difficult. It comes from the fact that in a real marriage, we have to unlearn all of the lies that the culture is constantly feeding us. It comes from all of those past sins that we bring into our marriages and, and all of our hang-ups and all of our securities. Wherever it comes from, what I have observed is that R.C. Sproul was correct. Here's what he said. He said, if money is one of the main problem areas of marriage, sex is far and away the number one problem. Actually, I've noticed in my years of ministry that it's not a problem that evaporates when a couple gets to year five or year 15, or year 30. There's a pattern here. We, we find these things difficult. And that is not helped by the other pattern that I've observed, that in the church we tend to talk more about what is wrong with sexual sin than we talk about what is good about this gift that God has given to husbands and wives. There are reasons for that, too. It's personal, and it's awkward, and we have to guard our language so that we don't uh, lead those who are vulnerable among us uh, into sins of the heart or of the mind. And so we need to be delicate, but we shouldn't be more delicate than the Scriptures. We shouldn't be so careful about these things that we refuse to tell our teenagers and our young adults that God has made marriage good, and not just the parts of a marriage that show up in public. He's made all of it good. Here's our first point today, that within marriage, sex is a gift that God expects us to receive. It's a good thing he's given to husbands and wives. Secondly, we see here that sex within marriage is a guard against temptation. 
a gift we should receive, and a guard against temptation. This is one of the reasons we uh, spent so much time uh, trying to decipher in verse 1 who it was that said this thing about it being good for a man not to touch a woman. Uh, the reason we took the time to explore that is that, that the answer of whether it was the Corinthians or Paul, it makes the difference between having a very low view of marriage or having a very high view of sexuality. And I think that's what this passage represents to us. Verse 2, look at it again. Paul says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each wife should have her own husband. Let's try not to be embarrassed or offended at the connection that Paul is drawing here by these things. God's word is telling us that a mutually satisfying marriage bed is a powerful protection against many of the forms of temptation that we all encounter on a daily basis. No, he's, he's not telling us that intimacy is the only reason to get married. He's not even telling us that it's the main reason to get married or one of the main reasons to get married. And no, he's not giving you some money-back guarantee that time alone with your spouse will make all of your other hang-ups with sexual temptation just magically disappear. Let's not try to make this more than what Paul is saying, but let's also not make it less than what he's telling us. God's apostle is telling us that inside a Christian marriage, this gift from God is a guardrail for your soul. It's a blessing to you to help you walk in purity. That idea is mirrored in verse 5, but with a little bit more detail. Read it again, verse 5. He says, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Imagine for a moment how that statement must have landed on the ears of the Corinthians. Imagine how it must have sounded to this church that's still dealing with the hangover headache of imbibing too much Greek philosophy and these ideas about the body being bad and the spirit being good, you know. For that matter, imagine how that statement still sounds in the ears of many well-meaning well Christians who believe that, you know, the spiritually serious life, it's all about asceticism. It's all about extreme self-denial. Imagine how it sounds to people who have been misled to believe that the God of the Bible is a tight-fisted, miserly God. That whenever you ask him for something like a birthday cake, he gives you oatmeal on principle so that you don't start expecting too much. There are people like that, you know. Many of them are sitting in Presbyterian churches. Because their extreme devotion to the sovereignty of God has not led them into understanding the joy of being his, but rather has prepared them to think that the only way people grow in the spirit is through heartache and suffering. The Lord does grow us through heartache and suffering, by the way. But he also grows us by showing us how much joy there is to be found in the gifts that he gives to his children. So Paul gives this wonderfully counterintuitive spiritual advice. He says, are you struggling with sexual temptation? He says, is your marriage on shaky ground because of the weakness of your flesh? Well, then by all means, you ought to pray about it. 
got to do it together if you both agree to. There's nothing too wonderful. There's nothing impossible for the Lord by all means. Pray for God's help to resist the evil one. Just make sure you don't pray too long. Right? Make sure your spiritual exercises do not hinder your sexual relationship with your husband or with your wife. Make sure that your zeal for prayer doesn't put a stumbling block in front of the other Christian who has been given into your care in this life. That's what Paul's telling them. That's why I think verse 6 actually ought to be connected backward to verse 5 rather than forward to verse 7. Verse 6, he says, now as a concession, not as a command, I say this. Actually, in verse 5, he's given us both. He's given us a concession and a command. He's given us something that believers can do. He's also told us something that they must do. What can they do? Well, they can abstain for a while if they want, if it's mutual, if it's good. If it leads to to times of devotion to the Lord together, and there are seasons in every marriage where uh, that's probably a really good thing to do. And you can do that, he says. You can, perhaps, he uses the word. But what they must do, verse 5, is to come together again. He says, so that Satan may not tempt you. He says, what they must do is make sure they do not deprive one another. Why? Because this is the relationship the Lord has appointed to help you both guard against temptation. This is straightforward biblical wisdom. Paul has not come up with this himself. He's inspired by the Holy Spirit, but he's just repeating the same ideas you find in the Old Testament. Remember Proverbs, chapter 5, verse 15. It says, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Verse 18, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? You can imagine, perhaps, the way that we might flip that and and approach it in the other direction. Wives, be always intoxicated with the husbands of your youth. Charles Bridges A Victorian-era British pastor puts it uh, in the way that only a Victorian-era British pastor could. He says, tender, well-regulated domestic affection is the best defense against the vagrant desires of unlawful passion. I love that. What's he telling us? He's telling us that within a Christian marriage, sex is a guardrail for your soul. It's a blessing for you. It's something that you ought to do for one another. Think about it this way. If you have young children, you ought to be praying for them. If you have young children, you ought to be praying for them every day, seeking the Lord on their behalf. You ought to be laboring over their souls in prayer. You ought to intercede with the Father that he would also take them as his children, that he would lead them in righteousness, that he would grow them into adults who know and love and trust his gospel. If you have children, you ought to be praying for them. But if you have children, you also ought to be reading the Bible to them. You also ought to be teaching them the faith that you hope they will believe. 
You ought to be having spiritual conversation with your kids. You should be asking them about their souls. You should be ready to answer their questions about what God is like and how much he loves us. But when you take a break from your prayers to explain to your children Noah and the ark and Daniel in the lion's den, it's not because you stop trusting that only God can save your kids. It's because you realize that when he does save them, it's probably going to have something to do with the duties he's called you to as a Christian parent. This is the same thing Paul is calling husbands and wives to do for one another. So by all means, pray for purity in your marriages. By all means, ask the Lord to lead you in righteousness, but then husbands, don't forget to do the work of meeting your wives' needs the way that only you can. Wives, do not forget to give your husband the gift that God only gives to him through you. It's not a magic elixir to make your temptations disappear, but it is a blessing. And inside a marriage, God's gift of sex is a guard against temptation. Finally, third point today. We need to know that what God wants for his people most is not pleasure. It's purity. What God wants is not pleasure, but purity. Back to verse 8, which, which almost seems to throw a wrench in the interpretation I've given to you so far. Because Paul says, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. The word single is not actually in the text, but it's pretty clear that's what Paul has in mind. Paul is himself single at this point. There's some conjecture that perhaps he had been widowed. Uh, perhaps after he had converted to Christianity, he had a wife who was able to divorce him. Uh, within the Jewish system. We don't know. It's all uh, speculation. But we know that he's single now. And we know that he's saying that uh, for those who are as he is, that is, others who are unmarried, others who are widowed, it'd probably be good if they can stay that way. He says it's a good thing if they can abide their current state, if they can focus their attention on pleasing the Lord instead of pleasing a spouse. I hope you recognize that for all the controversy and all the countercultural things that Paul has to say in this passage, that statement right there might be the biggest one of them. Don't forget that in the ancient world, especially the Jewish world, in the ancient world, much of your status and your place in society hinged on how big your family was. Did you have a wife? Did you have children? How many children? How many grandchildren gathered like olive shoots around your table, says Psalm 128. That's how you know you're a person blessed of the Lord. If you have a big family, and essentially if you are married. So not long after Paul's time, one of the rabbis taught, he said that any man who has no wife is no proper man. Another one said this. He said, he who does not engage in the propagation of the race is as though he sheds blood. Another one said that if a man makes it to 20 and he's not yet married, that's a sign that God has cursed him. Right? In the Jewish view, this is not a matter of subtle interpretation. In this day, singleness was rare, and it was universally looked down upon. Yet here's Paul the apostle to the Gentiles, and he's telling them that if you are not married, you don't have to worry about it. It's not something you have to be concerned about. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
In fact, he goes all the way back to pick up that language from verse 1. Notice they said it's good for a man not to touch a woman. We've seen that he seems to be arguing it's not good if you're already married, but then he picks it up again. Actually, if you're single, it might be another story. It is good for them to remain as I am. And so against the grain of every traditional culture, Paul is saying that singleness is a viable option for the Christian. Where does he get that? How could that possibly be? Well, he gets it from realizing that there is more to the Christian life than just getting married and raising a family. For that matter, there's more to the Christian life than getting married and having sex. Notice that in verse 4, Paul said that the bodies of wives belong to the husbands, the bodies of husbands belong to their wives. That is true of everyone who is married. But at the end of chapter 6, he's already reminded us that every Christian, single or married, already belongs to somebody far more important. Take a look back to chapter 6, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Paul's telling us that married or single, widowed or engaged, all Christians belong first to the Lord. Each Christian is called primarily to serve the Lord with their bodies. Thank you for serving me. Excuse me. Thank you, John. All Christians, first of all, are called to serve the Lord Jesus with their bodies. Some will serve him with a lifetime of celibacy in singleness. Others will serve him by giving themselves freely to their wife or to their husband. But the same calling is laid on all. He says, you are not your own. You have been purchased, he says, because Christ has died and been raised again. You have been purchased by the sacrifice that he made for sinners. If you are a Christian, it means that your eternal value is not wrapped up in who you share your marriage bed with. Rather, your future is found in the one who has claimed you as his possession. And at the end of the day, he sort of works backward to, uh, to help us understand that it means that marriage is not required to experience a full and fulfilling Christian life. If you need an example of that, you could look at Paul. Better yet, you could look at Christ himself. There is no one who lived a more perfect human life. No one who lived a more useful, more God-centered, more joy-filled life than Jesus Christ. He said that his delight was in the law of the Lord. He said that he came to do the will of his Father. He completely fulfilled every calling God laid upon him, and for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Isaiah says that out of the anguish of his soul, he saw and he was satisfied. And so it means that Jesus Christ lived, and he still lives, by the way. Jesus Christ lived the most perfect, most happy, most holy human life that has ever been, and he never married. Not physically, not to an earthly wife, not to an earthly bride. And if you are his, it means that whether you're married or single, that's not the primary question. The question is, are you glorifying God in your body and soul? The 
question is, are you serving the Lord in the life that he has given to you? Now that brings us finally to that question that you know almost has to come up in this passage. The issue of what some people have called the, quote, gift of singleness. If you spend much time talking to 20 and 30-somethings in the church, you might be aware that this phrase, this idea, can cause a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress among those who are in the church. There are some, of course, who aren't yet married, and they wonder if the fact that they are not married necessarily means that they have been chosen for this gift of singleness. And quite frankly, there are many who wonder if there's some sort of return policy, they can take it back if they decide they don't want it. The idea comes from the language Paul uses in verse 7. He says, Now I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. Now the thing to notice is that Paul does not use this phrase, the gift of singleness. That's not his term. He does say that he wishes that others were as he is. He also says the Lord has uniquely gifted him in the way that he's not gifted others. But then because he talks about his singleness later, somebody at some point, who knows who it was, put those two ideas together and the so-called gift of singleness was born. The problem is that the word that Paul uses for gift does not refer to his outward state of singleness. The word is charisma. It is the very same word that he uses later to describe the gifts of the Holy Spirit, uh, that uh, conversation that takes up all that space between chapters 12 and 14. He's talking there about internal gifts, blessings that God gives to the individual believer that ought to be shared and poured out to build up the entire church. In Paul's theology, charisma gifts always refer to internal gifts of the Holy Spirit. You might know that, that charisma, this idea, is a kind of watchword in the letter to the Corinthians. Because here's a church that prided itself on their spiritual gifts. And so there were divisions among this church in Corinth over who had which gift, which gift was most important. In verse 7, Paul seems to be preloading that later discussion by pointing out, you know, the Lord gifts each believer differently, and those different gifts don't make a bit of difference over who's more important in the church. And so he mentions things later like prophecy and tongues and teaching and exhortation. Charisma gifts are blessings given to believers for the sake of the church. They are gifts given to be shared, not a burden to be endured. You could put it another way. These charisma gifts are internal blessings, not external circumstances. All right then. What was the gift that Paul claimed for himself in verse 7? The answer is, we don't know. He doesn't tell us. He does not say that it's the gift of singleness. We do know that he was single. We know that he was content with his singleness, actually. Paul, amazingly, seems to be able to maintain chastity with a good conscience. He's not itching to get married. He's not pulled towards sexual temptation in a way that presents a stumbling block for him. Beyond that, he never gives the gift a name. 
In fact, he says that if there are other people who are single and they are discontent, that is, if their internal gifting does not align with their external circumstance, if they don't have satisfaction in their singleness, if they struggle with the constant temptation to immorality, that is a sign that singleness is not for them. He says, verse 8, it's good to remain single. He says, verse 9, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. What does God want for his people? He wants purity. He wants a heart that is cleansed by Jesus Christ and a body that walks in chastity or in union with a spouse. The takeaway is this. If you are single in the Lord and you do not want to be, if you are single in the Lord and you do not want to be, if you find singleness unbearable, if you find celibacy insufferable, you don't have to be stuck with it. Paul says, if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. That's a command. I know that it's easier said than done. I know it might even seem cruel from somebody standing up here who's already married, who can say, well, it must be an easy thing. That's not what I'm claiming. But Paul is telling you that there is no shame in pursuing marriage. There's no shame in making it a goal for your Christian life. There's no problem in taking concrete steps to make it happen. There's no shame in talking to older believers, Christians who know you well, and asking them, do you know any other solid believers who might be a good fit for my future? There is no shame in asking others to pray for you that the Lord would provide a husband or a wife. Paul says if you are single and if you can't stand it, you should marry. You don't have to believe that you've got this unbearable weight of the gift of singleness because that's not a biblical idea. Then again, if you're single and you're happy, If your life is full with serving the Lord, if you don't feel like you're missing out on what everybody else seems to have, if at least you don't feel like that most of the time, that's okay. Paul says it's good to remain as you are. That's fine. There's no shame in singleness in Christ's church. You are not a second-class citizen, he's telling us. And it doesn't mean that you have to believe that you've been given some special gift of singleness that can't be wasted. It just might mean that you have the gift of being satisfied with where you are in Christ, and that's a very good place to be. Believe it or not, there's a whole lot more we could say, and we won't. I'll end with this. Marriage is good. Purity is better. If you are in Christ, you belong to the Lord. Therefore, married or single, widowed or otherwise, glorify God with your body. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord and God, we thank you for the Savior who has made us his own. We pray that you would help us in all of our various life situations to understand how to apply these things. Lord, this is is difficult, no matter where it hits us. Help us, Father, to have the wisdom and the discernment to hear your word and to love your word and to walk faithfully with you. 
Oh, Lord, guard our marriages. Guard our children. Guard our singles. That we might walk with you in integrity. That we might follow you where you lead us. Help us, Father, to rejoice in you and the love that you have for all of your people. We pray in Jesus' name.